Hello, and welcome to 1867 and All That, Episode 9, Lake of Two Mountains on Fire. It was November 15, 1837, and Louis-Joseph Papineau and other Patriot leaders had fled Montreal just ahead of the bailiffs and warrants for their arrest. This was still a week before the Patriot's victory at the Battle of Saint-Denis, and of course then also ahead of their loss at Saint-Charles. All of that lay in the future as the Patriot leaders huddled in the hotel that night, planning. The arrest warrants had forced their hand. Now, what would they do? Invited to join the group was a rambunctious Swiss-born revolutionary, Amory Giraud, who had come to Lower Canada only six years earlier. Tall and good-looking, Giraud was said to have had quite a past. He claimed to have fought in Simon Bolivar's Army of Liberation in New Spain, and then served in the Mexican cavalry against the Spanish. He had lived in the United States for two years, trying his hand teaching agriculture, running his own farm, but really excelling at just one thing, journalism, political journalism. And when he arrived in Lower Canada, he put these skills to work for the Patria. Giraud joined the other Patriot leaders who had fled Montreal and who were weighing their options. The incipient rebels and hopeful new national statesmen planned to hold a general convention to be held on December 4th. They needed guns and ammunition and to rouse the people for action. When the meeting ended, Papineau headed to the Richelieu Valley, and we know that didn't turn out very well, while others went south to the United States to gather arms and to try to enlist American aid. But Amory Giraud headed westward on his own mission to foment rebellion in the area around the Lake of Two Mountains. The area was already on the precipice of revolt, and Giraud would push it over the edge. This week, we are back in Lower Canada as the next wave of violent confrontation washes over the colony. When he arrived in the Two Mountains area, Giraud found a complex welter of conflicting views on just what should be done amongst the locals. Some wanted to put down arms, while others demanded that Lower Canadians fight to the death and overthrow British tyranny. Giraud himself agreed very much with the no-surrender approach, and he set about convincing the locals that they should adopt it too. The Lake of Two Mountains area was a microscopic version of Lower Canada itself. The district was prosperous and, in its southern regions, populated largely by French Canadians, though with a healthy sprinkling of British residents too. Just to the north and east of the principal villages, though, were new settlements of British immigrants, and relations between the two areas could be tense, especially when it came to politics. There had been more than a fair share of election-related brawls, with memories on both sides of opposing factions attacking the polls and trying to turn the election their way. Even so, ethnicity or language was not necessarily the key dividing factor before the rebellion. One of the local Patriot leaders was William Scott, a wealthy merchant of, you guessed it, Scottish descent. Scott 
though, was a Papineau loyalist. In the agitation meetings in the summer of 1837, leading up to the rebellion, Scott had spoken out violently against British authority and its depredations. Even so, it was not at all clear if, when push came to shove, or more accurately, when muskets replaced words, he would go the final distance to outright rebellion. The local habitants were themselves divided. Most strenuously against rebellion and the liberal political cause of the Patriot was the local priest Jacques Paquin. Paquin was the parish priest at Saint-Eustache, the principal town in the Two Mountains area, and by all accounts a devout man. Paquin tended to be a little morally strict and in this time, that also meant being more than a little wary of the liberal tendencies of the Patriot. The Patriot anti-secular liberalism could put off many in the church. And while some local clergy sided with the Patriot, Paquin was not of this ilk. All through the disturbances of the summer and autumn of 1837, Paquin criticized the Patriot and spoke out against the mounting calls for rebellion. He urged his parishioners to heed the church's teachings and to consider Bishop Lartigue's mandement. Remember, that was the religious announcement to avoid trouble because of the immorality of fighting against constituted authority. Still, others in the Two Mountains region strenuously advocated radical action. A local doctor, Jean-Olivier Chenier, not only organized meeting after meeting for the Patriot cause in 1837, he also told participants at these meetings that he himself would never waver. Follow me, he told them, and I give you permission to kill me if ever you see me flee. And here's a bit of foreshadowing. Chenier wasn't going to flinch, not from the threats of the parish priest, nor from the musket balls. This was the scene that Amiori Giraud arrived into in the middle of November of 1837. He arrived in the town and claimed that Papineau had sent him with orders to ready the area for rebellion. The only question was, and to Giraud there was only one answer to this question, are you with us or against us? Well, that's not quite true. Giraud had other questions too, like when should we attack Montreal? And his answer to that question was, right away. In other words, Giraud acted as a radicalizing influence when he arrived in the region in mid-November. But the Two Mountains area had been rife with political disturbances for months. Local Patriot had been infuriated by Gosford's ban on politically seditious meetings back in June. They proudly ignored the edict and threatened any who disagreed. It was here that the Sheravari had hit hardest with crowds of Patriot demanding the loyalty of other residents, that magistrates and militia officers renounced their positions in the corrupt government. And when the local loyalists fled to Montreal, complaining about nighttime mobs, there was little the government could do. When bailiffs and constables tried to arrest those who turned violent in the Cherivari, they discovered it was no longer possible to enforce the law in the Lake of Two Mountains region the local Patriot had taken the law into their own hands. That was how things stood even before the arrest warrants had been dispatched for the Patriot leaders and before the battles in the Richelieu River Valley region. 
when news arrived in the town that the residents of Saint-Denis had defeated Gore's troops, the local Patriot were elated. Now, what should they do? Giraud advised the locals that now was the time to go on the offensive. Surely this showed that the British were weak, or at least they could be defeated. He urged the other Patriot leaders to lead an invasion of Montreal, to take over the local seat of government before moving on to Quebec City itself. But others in the area weren't so sure. For many in Saint-Eustache and also in Saint-Benoît, the two principal towns, the most immediate fear and the enemy they thought might be coming for them were the local English-speaking residents of nearby villages and the lands just to the north. So when Giraud urged them to head to Montreal, even the steadfast patriots weren't so sure. They had to be certain, first of all, that their homes and families would be safe from attack. In the first instance then, the Patriot focused on defense. They built defensive barricades around Saint-Benoît and Saint-Eustache. It was Saint-Eustache that became the main military camp, and the Patriot supporters from the nearby areas tended to congregate there. They created a military barricade around the church in the seigneurial manor and several strongly built homes in one cluster in the town. But they also organized a wider campaign to intercept messengers moving around the settlements. And then, having barricaded themselves into a defensive position, they began, as you do in tense times, in confined circumstances, to bicker amongst themselves. It didn't help that the local priest, Paquin, was holed up in the center of it all. He kept warning the local residents about the evils and dangers of what they were doing. The number of patriots in the camp rose and fell, depending on the hopefulness of all involved. Initially, the numbers were high, and so when local loyalists fled to Montreal out of fear for what might be coming, they took with them stories about the great amassing patriot army gathering at Saint-Eustache. But in reality, the numbers weren't so secure. Many supporters showed up only to get cold feet and depart. Other patriot from nearby villages and regions descended on Saint-Eustache, keeping up a decent number of defenders. But defenders they had become, cutting themselves off from the rest of the colony, and having rejected the plan to attack Montreal, they essentially holed themselves up in the region to wait for the impending invasion. Their one attempt at an outward expedition didn't go as planned. Giraud and the local doctor, Chenier, decided to lead an expedition to the nearby indigenous settlement at Oka. Taking 300 men with them in the night, they descended first on the Hudson Bay Company post, where they roused the company officer from his bed and then waited while he got dressed, before insisting that he deliver to them the weapons in his cache. But they were more than a little disappointed when he told them that he'd already sent the cannons away. The planned raid on Oka hadn't been much of a secret. The Patriot had been talking about raiding for the past several days. Well, after all, he said, if you wanted the guns, you should have been more secretive. Frustrated, they still took possession of several muskets and, more importantly, a large cache of lead that could be made into ammunition. Then they went to talk to one of the Oka chiefs. Oka was a mission settlement populated by a mix of mostly Algonquin and Iroquois peoples. 
The indigenous peoples were said to have several cannons of their own in the village, and the Patria wanted them. At the very least, they wanted to disarm potential allies of the crown. In reports about what happened, we never get the exact name of the chief with whom they talked, but he was clearly a wily figure who knew what he was doing. Facing down 300 armed men in the middle of the night, he played a verbal game of cat and mouse. Giraud wanted to know if the Indians would support the Protestants against the French Canadians, to which the chief said, our soul is not united by a bond with the Protestants. Asked about where the Indians' loyalties lay, he replied, it is hard to choose between the father and the brother, but we know that when the bark is taken from the tree, the tree decays. Okay, so far, so evasive. And then when Giraud asked if the residents of Oka would use the guns against the Patria, he replied, Brother, I will not interfere in this dispute between you and your father. If you have sown good corn in the garden of your brother, you shall eat of his bread with him. It was beautifully done, diplomatic, and to the Patria, it almost certainly seemed like a metaphorical obfuscation. Giraud had no answer. Not wanting to seize the weapons and thus create enemies close by, he opted to leave, content at least with what he'd been able to confiscate from the Hudson Bay Company stores. The very next day, the Oka chief sent their cannon to the nearby English loyalists. Meanwhile, back in St. Eustache, the news wasn't good. The local patria finally learned about Wetherall's victory over their allies at St. Charles. Even worse, reports drifted in about the miseries afflicting those who survived. Reports arrived about the degradations meted out on the locals in the wake of the attack and of the horrible sight of prisoners being led in chains through Montreal. Now, not all the stories were true, but this hardly mattered. Doubts started to fester, and some patriot, keen on the cause in general, also began to wonder if the turn to arms was the right method of achieving their goals. The local merchant, William Scott, was turned off by the trek to Oka and the sacking of the company's stores there. This was the point where he broke ranks with Chenier and Giraud. And he wasn't just going to leave himself. He spoke to a large meeting of men, arguing that the whole action now was a folly and ought to be abandoned. He was apparently quite convincing. By early December, the armed camp at St. Eustache was, for a time, almost entirely abandoned. But it didn't last long. Giraud and Chenier returned and drummed up support for the cause once again. Other supporters came in from the outlying districts. What they really needed, they thought, was to act. Enough waiting around. They needed to take the fight to the enemy. That's why they set in motion a plan to attack a nearby military camp that they believed was not well manned. If they could take the fight to the enemy and succeed, then perhaps this would turn things in their favor and it would brighten the mood of those who doubted the wisdom of military action. So they began to hatch a plan of attack. All the while that Giraud and Chenier and the local patriot had been debating what to do and preparing their defenses, General Colborne had been proceeding with his own plans. Remember, Gore had been sent back to the Richelieu Valley to make sure that nothing came of the planned December 4th General Convention. Gore arrived back in Montreal from this mission on December 6th with the assurance that the region was calm. 
And then the Missisquoi volunteers had intercepted the store of ammunition that Patriot leaders had attempted to bring into the colony from the United States. Also good news for Colborne. Another detachment of British regulars had been on the march from New Brunswick. Colborne worried that the bad weather would stop them from arriving upriver, but when they arrived, Colborne could be even more assured. Now he could take action. More certain that the Richelieu region was under control and that he could rely on local loyalist militias, Colborne could turn his attention to the other major region of Patria activity in the colony, the Lake of Two Mountains. Just as with his plan for the Richelieu campaign, Colborne ordered a pincer movement attacking the Patriot stronghold at Saint-Eustache from two sides. This time, Colborne himself commanded one of the forces. Colborne's group would come at Saint-Eustache from the main road to the east, but another group would approach Saint-Eustache from the south and would attempt to cross the frozen river on the other side of the town. This group was made up largely of volunteers, mostly from Saint-Eustache itself. These were the Loyalists, many of them French Canadians who had fled Saint-Eustache as the Patriots set up their armed camp several weeks earlier. Now they would come back home, but this time at the head of an opposing army. The troops moved out of Montreal on December 13th, and it was early the next day on December 14th that the Loyalist volunteers arrived at Saint-Eustache first and began to head out over the ice toward the town. It was still early in the winter and the weather had been mild. The water was covered with ice, but they didn't know whether it would hold all their weight. The commanding officer, a man named Globensky, who was from Saint-Eustache, and in fact, the local patriots had confiscated his home and were holed up in it at just that moment, ordered that the troops spread out thinly over the ice so as to spread their weight more evenly. Nervously, for the ice and the combat, Globensky's volunteers approached Saint-Eustache. In the town, the Patriots spotted the soldiers coming across the ice. Giraud went out onto the frozen river to get a better look. To his eye, it seemed that he faced only about 80 troops. Thinking that this was the only force approaching Saint-Eustache, he quickly gathered a force of about 300 men and advanced onto the ice himself to meet the approaching troops. It was a serious miscalculation. At just that moment, the main force of British troops were approaching Saint-Eustache from the east down the main road. Colborne spotted the Patriot approaching Glebensky's volunteers and immediately took advantage of the situation. The artillery set to work, sweeping the Patriot position with grape shot. Giraud and the Patriot quickly realized their mistake. Now, exposed on the ice, they retreated to the village. What should they do? At least half of the Patriot, and possibly more, knew what they wanted to do, flee. Although there may have been about 800 Patriot in the town earlier that day, only about half were armed with guns. Seeing the vastly larger British force approaching, about 500 quickly decided that they wanted nothing to do with this messy business. They up and left. It was none too soon. Colborne sent one force to march around the north side of the village and proceed to encircle Saint-Eustache. 
the troops had to slug their way through drifts of snow sometimes three feet deep, so it would take them a while. Even so, if the reluctant Patriot didn't leave soon, they would be surrounded. Giraud did his best to rally the troops, but he did so amidst the chaos and uncertainty of men who saw themselves being quickly surrounded by a superior force. Giraud left to the back of the village to rally the troops and try, he said, to prevent others from fleeing. He saw the British troops who were working their way around the village and about to cut him off. At this point, Giraud opted to leave the town. It was and remains a controversial decision. Was he abandoning the cause? Was he, like other leaders, leaving just as the situation grew dire? Now, it's impossible to know, although Giraud's later actions don't suggest cowardice. And he didn't just leave in any direction. He headed off to the nearby village of Saint-Benoît to gather reinforcements. He met another troop of Patriot along the way who were themselves headed for Saint-Eustache. The men wanted to know where on earth he was going. One man denounced him as a cowardly poltroon. Now Giraud went to draw his pistol, but too late. Another man in the group had reached for a poker and hit Giraud over the head. They then essentially kidnapped him to take back to Saint-Eustache. But when the group stopped at a tavern to warm themselves, Giraud escaped out a window and hijacked a carriage and sped away. There went yet another Patriot leader in the midst of battle. Now, back in Saint-Eustache, the numbers were down to about 250 determined men, hanging on until the bitter end, vastly outnumbered, but not willing to surrender. The Patriot hold themselves up in the church and in a number of stoutly built buildings around the square near the church. The leader here was Dr. Chenier. He had said he would fight to the end and here he was fighting until the end. He barricaded himself in the church, positioning the men in upper balconies to shoot out the windows. There weren't enough weapons and Chenier is supposed to have given the reassuring advice of, don't worry, some will get killed and you can take their arms. Now, he also chopped down the stairs up to the balcony in the church, so there'd be no going back. Around the town, the British artillery set to work. The artillery fired on the church and the surrounding buildings again and again, seemingly to little effect. Except for the firing of the guns, all was quiet. It might almost have seemed as if the Patriot had retreated from the village, but they hadn't. They were surrounded. From this point, several British forces closed in on the square, first taking several of the outbuildings and then working their way up to the church itself. The church was stoutly defended and a strong structure. The only way to get the defenders out was by fire. The break came with a sortie led by the son of Colonel Wetherall, the victor of St. Charles. This Wetherall was actually a surgeon with the troops, but he didn't restrict himself to doctoring. It was Wetherall Jr. who led a small group of men into the sacristy attached to the church, killing the men in the room and then overturning the burning stove. They threw as many of the room's belongings onto the fire and then dashed out again. This was the opening the British troops needed. The smoke from the fire provided cover for other troops to approach the building. 
Then another group rushed into the back of the church and set fire to the altar. The church was, by this point, ablaze. But what could the patriarch do? Either they stayed in the church and died of smoke and fire, or they jumped out the windows only to be shot by the approaching British troops. Some of the patriot had fled the church out onto the river, but there they were shot down by the loyalist volunteers still guarding the escape routes in that direction. Shenye himself did not back down. He leapt out a window and tried to rally the men, only to be shot down again and again. This was one patriot leader who fought to the very last. In the end, just about every defender who had remained in the church was killed. There were more than 100 other prisoners. Only three British troops died in the engagement. The whole battle had lasted about four hours, but it was, in the end, a rout. The aftermath was not pretty. As the sun set late in the afternoon, the fires started. The whole barricaded camp was set to blaze. The church and all of the adjoining buildings from which the patriots had fired on the troops. The military policy was to burn the homes of enemy leaders, and so the patriot leaders' homes burned. But this was not all. The fires spread throughout the town. In all, about 60 homes were burned. And then there was the pillaging. The troops went searching for valuables and, of course, for food and drink. The bodies were stripped of clothes and valuables, left naked on the ground. Colborne had his troops billeted all through the village as a show of force and to demonstrate what it meant to take on the military in this way. Although some officers attempted to limit the more egregious destruction, it's likely that Colborne was not too disappointed with the damage. He wanted to leave a message in Saint-Eustache. And as for the loyalist volunteers, the men from Saint-Eustache, who themselves had been threatened in the summer and the autumn, well, this was their turn for revenge. The next day, the troops awoke to the carnage that was Saint-Eustache. But as far as they knew, this was only the beginning. All of the reports from loyalists in the area claimed that the real Patriot stronghold was the nearby village of Saint-Benoît. And so early the next day, the troops were up and packed, ready to march. By 9 a.m., they set out on the road west to Saint-Benoît. Now, in reality, the Patriot leaders had by this time decided that more resistance was futile. As we've seen, Giraud fled, barely escaping with his life from the Patriot who believed him to be a traitor. The other Patriot leaders who had gathered in Saint-Benoît the night before decided to try to flee to the United States. They advised the local habitants to hide their weapons and to meekly surrender to Colborne, at least for now. And so, as Colborne approached Saint-Benoît, he was greeted with a small delegation of habitants carrying a white flag of surrender. Colborne sent the delegation back to the village with a message. No harm would be done to anyone, he said. Lay down your arms, which we will take, and surrender yourself. Do not fire a shot, or else there will be retribution. And so, when the large British force and the local loyalist volunteers arrived in Saint-Benoît, they found an eerily quiet village. The hastily built, fortified outposts were now abandoned. Almost at the same time as Colborne's forces arrived in Saint-Benoît, a large loyalist force almost 1,000 strong came into the village from the north. 
This was the loyalist attack that the local residents had been fearing would come. In fact, all sides in the area had been frantic with worry that each side would attack the other. But with news of Colborne's arrival in the area, the loyalists had decided to march upon St. Benoit to meet up with Colborne's troops. But the large contingent wasn't needed for combat now, and only served as a forceful show of the military might that could be raised. Still, Colborne and the volunteers weren't done with St. Benoit. Before leaving, Colborne ordered the three houses of the Patriot leaders be burned to the ground. They were. This was the standard punishment by this point. But the forces gathered in St. Benoit didn't stop there. The local volunteers in particular angrily took advantage of the situation to mete out a justice of their own. For months, they had been threatened and conjoled, told to side with the Patriot or else. They and their neighbors had faced the Sharaveri, been shamed by having their horses' tails and manes cut off. Now, they paid those threats back with fire. They burned not just the homes of the three leaders, but almost the whole village, even the church. Several regular officers kept trying to put out the fire in the church, but each time the volunteers set it ablaze once again. In the end, the troops fled the village amidst the rising flames. Ironically, even before this time, the whole region had the moniker of the Grand Brûlé, that is, Great Blaze or Fire, named after a large forest fire from decades earlier. Now, fire was back, and this time, the name would stick not just with the region, but with the man who had led the troops, General Colborne. To lower Canadians, Colborne would become the Vieux Brûlé, the old firebrand. To loyalists, he represented the great triumph of the established order against the forces of rebellion. But to other lower Canadians, he became a symbol of harsh retribution. The troops paraded through several other villages in the region, disarming locals and receiving delegations who affirmed their loyalty, giving cheers to the new Queen Victoria. It was no doubt strained applause, but there was a lot at stake for those lower Canadians trying to avoid retribution. After five days, most of the troops returned to Montreal, triumphant, leaving only a small force behind to overwinter in the area. The uprising in 1837 in Lower Canada was well and truly over. As for Amory Giraud, the determined Swiss man who had so taken the plight of his fellow Lower Canadians to heart, he fled from the region from the troops, and even from his fellow friends. But he didn't make it far. Loyalist volunteers pursued him on the road, and he was ultimately captured trying to make his escape. But before his captors could disarm Giraud, he decided that he would be no captive. He may have fled battle at Saint-Eustache, but he hadn't abandoned the cause. And so he shot himself in the head, dead on the roadside, but not, in the end, a captive. And so ends part one of our story of the rebellions in the Canadas in 1837. The forces of order and loyalism had triumphed. In Upper Canada, the small contingent under William Lyne Mackenzie had not been able to take advantage of disturbances in Lower Canada to lead a coup d'etat, while the regular troops were out of the colony. Loyalist volunteers flocked to the support of the government, 
and upper Canadian reformers proved, in the end, far too timid and reluctant to put their ideals to the test of arms. In Lower Canada, the fight had been more strenuous. Support for the Patriot cause was much more widespread, and many more habitants had risked taking up their old hunting rifles for purposes more political and revolutionary. But even here, the quick action of the British regulars under General Colborne and also other loyalist volunteers had quickly put down the insurrection. The consequences were, in the large historical scale, somewhat small. If you only count the number of dead, you wouldn't think much of the battles in the autumn of 1837. But for those involved, the stakes were high. And for the residents of the Richelieu Valley and Saint-Eustache and Saint-Benoît in particular, the damage had been done. The next year, when rebellion again broke out in the Canadas, the Two Mountains region would be quiet. But that's right, we are talking about next year, and not far into it either. It's over, but it's not over. Winter set in, Christmas came, and many of the rebel leaders spent that holiday either in jail or in exile. They weren't finished yet, though. Many had escaped, and they would live to fight another day. Next week, we're back in Upper and Lower Canada, and we're also in the United States, following the rebel leaders as they plan their next moves. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you haven't already, please do subscribe. 1867 and All That is created, written, and narrated by me, Christopher Dummett, and the sound engineering is done by Matthew Hayes with the generous support of Trent Online at Trent University. Until next time, remember, there's a lot of All That to 1867 and All That.